Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenet. One of my goals when I started this podcast series was not only to talk to academic historians, people who are housed in universities, but also to talk to people outside the ivory tower, people who practice American history in other venues, to talk with digital historians, talk with bloggers, talk with public historians of a variety of different uh, kinds. And it's within this vein that I invited our guest for this episode, Kathy Wright, who is the curator of the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia. And I've known Kathy, I think, for about 10 years. Uh, But despite that, I know relatively little about what she does every day. And so part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation uh, was because there's some exciting things going on at the Museum of the Confederacy recently that we talk about. And there's a a merger that's taking place between the museum uh, and another Civil War center in Richmond. But also to understand some more about what a curator does and the ways in which the uh, role of the curator is to, to, to teach American history uh, to a variety of different audiences and how she interacts with those audiences. So here's my conversation with Kathy Wright. Well, welcome to the show, Kathy. It's really good to have you here. Um, Thank I guess you, it's David. been a few years since I've had a chance to see you. Uh, I was lucky enough this this semester to have a teaching a, a graduate level class on, on the Civil War and uh, first day of class we were going around and everyone was saying who they were and, and what their experience was in the Civil War and half of our students here are from from Britain and had said you know they had read a few books in undergraduate or what have you but most of them hadn't been to the states and hadn't visited Civil War sites and we finally get down to the last student who said oh well I worked at the Museum of the Confederacy for a summer <laughs> I said, wow, do, do you know Kathy Wright? And she said, well, yeah, she uh, she was my boss for the summer. And it was realized to serve a how small world sometimes we run in. We think we're going across an ocean and, and meeting all kinds of new people. And we find people who, uh, you know, uh, new old friends. So it's really good to, to have you here. And it was sort of interesting to have you sort of pop up in a context I wasn't expecting to hear your name. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, you just never know where where we, uh, you know, various kinds of museum curators are going to pop up. <laughs> so for those people who haven't been to the Museum of the Confederacy, uh, can you tell us what the Museum of the Confederacy is and, and what one would see what were one to come visit? Yes. Um, well, I should actually start um, kind of where we are currently and work our way backwards uh, because I don't know if you've heard over there in Scotland, um, but our big news here in Richmond is that the Museum of the Confederacy recently announced that we are merging with the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar, and we're going to be creating a new entity, uh, which has already been created on paper and is in the process of becoming a 501c3 organization. Um, to um, it, 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 um, Our new name is the American Civil War Museum, and we're going to be building a brand new facility down at the Tredegar Ironworks Complex right on the James River here in Richmond, which is really exciting. Um, we, we will continue to own and operate the White House of the Confederacy, um, which is really where our story began uh, back in the 1890s. We, we began collecting artifacts. Um, we, we really were an outgrowth of the Hollywood Memorial Association, um, which had been formed uh, back in the late 1860s um, 
after the war uh, as a means of providing burials for Confederate soldiers um, and marking their graves and honoring those, those graves on various Memorial Day ceremonies. Um, I guess I, I think what happened is that as time went by and the ranks of the surviving veterans even, even began to thin out, people began to have a sense that they needed to collect many of these artifacts together in order to preserve them and to tell those wonderful stories that only people who personally owned and used them can often provide. Um, so the ladies in Richmond uh, organized themselves and created an organization called the Confederate Memorial Literary Society. They were trying to basically seem as uh, you know, non-historical as possible um, while basically in the process of creating a history museum. And they acquired the former White House of the Confederacy, which served as the Confederate mansion for Jefferson Davis and his family here in Richmond. Um, and that became the main museum building. It opened its doors on February 22nd, 1896. There was a big veterans reunion in Richmond just a few months later. So there were many people from all over the South um, and border states who traveled here and were happy to bring uh, many of their you know, uh, clothing items, uniforms, uh, weapons, um, and really just oddball curiosity items, um, you know, a, a message that's been rolled up and hidden in a bottle that was never delivered during the Siege of Vicksburg. Um, just wonderful things with, with terrific stories behind them. Um, and this museum uh, operated out of the White House of the Confederacy and was, and was known as the Confederate Museum um, for many decades. And by the 1960s, it was really very overcrowded. Um, you know, kind of think of grandma's attic bursting at the seams. Um, they had things crammed everywhere. Uh, it was just such a treasure trove, but they had clearly outgrown the building. Mm -hmm. um, so and the, they the White House isn't that big. No, it's really not that large. It's not. Um, it, it's not anywhere on the scale of the White House in Washington, and um, it's um, only about four floors, which does include the third floor, uh, which were basically spare bedrooms uh, and the basement. Um, so. Um, we're talking, you know, four floors of, of rooms with, you know, each of them having anywhere between probably four to six rooms per floor. And some of those could be quite small. Mm -hmm. um, what was kind of interesting was the way that they organized the museum. Um, they decided that each room in the White House would be dedicated to a different southern state. And there would be women from that state who were essentially in charge of governing it um, and um and soliciting donations, which is probably the um, one of their uh, one of their more important roles. Um, so, for instance, the first regent of the Virginia Room was Mildred Lee. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's really hard to argue when the daughter of Robert E. Lee uh, presents as the very first donation her father's pistol, and then puts pressure on her siblings to give more Lee items and. Um, word kind of percolates throughout the South that this is a, a, a wonderful new home for all of these items. Um, some states had at that time already um, kind of begun uh, going out and collecting many of, um, of, of, of artifacts and documents which tied to their own state's Civil War history. Um, but as far as we know, there was not a, um, any kind of effort um, other than ours to really gather items from all of the states uh, from the Confederacy, as well as border states. Um, and of course, you know, the, um, there, there were a, a few Union items which kind of worked their way in as well, uh, generally things that had been captured or picked up off a battlefield or something like that. Um, but um, 
it was really very incredible how they managed to build this collection uh, through this means of donations. Uh, there were there were very very few purchases made over the years. Almost everything has been donated to us, uh, or or left to us uh, as as part of of a, a as, as as part of a will. So um, yeah. it's been but really phenomenal. And and all of our records go back to those old stateroom organizations. And part of what I really enjoy doing is going and reading through all of that donation paperwork, which is a treasure trove um, of personal stories and people explaining, you know, why these items meant so much to them and what it meant to be able to place them in a public repository. So I imagine the story of the war that was told in the first decades of the museum would be very different than the kind of story of the war that you would get if you went to the museum today. The museum today, in terms of its interpretive approach, is very different from how it was initially founded. The women who began collecting uh, the artifacts for the museum and, and governing it really um, were very interested more in the story of the men, in, in the various soldiers and the government. Um, and in fact, we, I, I found one letter uh, where we were offered a portrait of a woman, and one of the museum women wrote back to her and, and actually underlined, this is a man's museum and no woman's portrait will ever be accepted. Uh, they were very explicit that this was to celebrate you know, the male sacrifice, men's courage, those kinds of things. And yet there are many other interesting stories that kind of worked their way into that. Um, we have lots of items that were given that certainly were owned or used by women. Um, hundreds of items that, as far as I can tell, have no tie-in to the military or the government or men of any kind. So I'm glad that there was some more flexibility on, on that level. And there's also a lot of stories about African-Americans, both free and, uh, and slaves. So that is, is really amazing to kind of read between the lines um, because this was founded as a very celebratory institution uh, meant to not only commemorate but to really celebrate the, the sacrifice of Southern soldiers. It was very much part of the lost cause uh, kind of mentality uh, where they were, um, you know, really wanting to to celebrate the fact that they knew that they were going to lose, but they fought the good fight. And over the years, uh, and particularly, I would say, since the mid-20th century, we have evolved into a much more um, kind of objective, interpretive, research-based organization. And it's been um, really exciting to watch, probably especially since the 1970s and the 1980s, when we began you know, getting funding from places like the National Endowment for the Humanities for a really groundbreaking exhibition uh, on African Americans in the antebellum South. Um, which is something that would have been unheard of for us to have done, you know, probably even 30 or 40 years prior to that. Um, so we really have moved into the modern age in terms of um, our, our focus and our approach. Um, so I, I really, I, I find it very amusing um, when people who are not from the South will, you know, hear where I where I work, and they will make all kinds of assumptions both about me and the nature of the organization, um, which are usually very much uh, false. <laughs> Do you ever have experiences of people who have come in who have been to the museum at different points in their lives when the presentation was different and comment to you about, about this isn't the museum I remembered from my childhood, either for oh, good or absolutely. for ill? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've, um, once the ladies kind of outgrew the White House of the Confederacy and, and, and the collection was, was essentially bursting at the seams, uh, they built our new museum uh, building, which is essentially right behind the White House. 
which opened in 1976. Um, and so, um, we, um, I think the comment that I hear the most often uh, is from people who went through the museum when everything was over in the White House, and that would be a very, uh, you know, very much a very obviously different kind of experience. Uh, if you went through the White House in the 1960s, for instance, um, the guards, there may be one or two guards working. Um, I've been told that they were former World War I veterans, uh, so you know they've kind of meandered about very slowly, and I'm not sure how much protection that they really would have offered. Um, but um, everything would have been stored on bookcases, uh, some of them with glass fronts, but some of them without. Um, or even just dressers. And so people would just open dresser drawers and kind of look at artifacts that were, you know, tucked in there with labels pinned to them or sewn onto them. Um, so there were all kinds of little paper labels and sometimes brass tags and things like that that, that, that would kind of explain what you were looking at. Um, but it was just really overflowing. Um, but some people really expressed kind of a, a fondness for that kind of experience because um, in some cases, they were actually able to touch some of the items, um, which I can certainly understand and appreciate why that would be a really special experience. I mean, part of the reason I became a curator was because I, too, like to go in and touch things. But I always wear white gloves <laughs> um, whenever that is recommended. So um, I kind of shudder when I think of, you know, hundreds of people going through the house on a given day back in those days and, you know, most of them touching things as they went. And um, we know that many of the artifacts suffered uh, because of the, the physical environment. Uh, the house was also heated with, uh, with, with coal-powered furnaces. So there was coal dust kind of blasting all over everything. Um, I've seen some photographs of, of, of the way that things were displayed over there that kind of make me shudder. Uh, one in particular is this row of artillery, uh, various kinds of, of cannonballs and, and other kinds of projectiles, all lined up right in front of a uh, heater. <laughs> that could be disastrously... Like, Exactly, a really bad idea, um, or where they would take a flag outside and hang it over a brick wall and photograph it and then fold it back up and take it back inside, um, or some of my favorite photos where they were actually um, wearing some of the clothing and posing with parasols and things like that. Um, I don't think they did that very often, but even one photo shoot, frankly, was, was too many. <laughs> Well, I guess for them it wasn't nearly as old. Uh, no, and and that that would have been a really amazing thing to have gone through it. Um, you know, even back in like the 1940s, you could have had actual Confederate veterans possibly, you know, coming into the house and telling stories. Um, and we know that um, certainly in the earlier decades, like in 1900s and 19-teens and 20s, there were a lot of veterans. Um, of course, they were they were very elderly at that time, but they were still coming to Richmond for for some reunions and coming by the museum. And um, it really would have um, been a, a a very moving way to get people interested in in the history of the war to have had that that first person kind of connection to it. So I'm uh, sort of reluctant to admit this, but I am not entirely sure what a curator does. What do you do all day? <laughs> Besides put on white gloves and, and handle things that I wish I could. Exactly. Yeah, I think some people think, you know, it's all sword fighting around here or something. <laughs> <laughs> but being a curator is one of those professions that it really can mean a lot of things depending on, both, you know, kind of who you are and the organization that you end up at. Um, 
I personally kind of enjoy being a jack of all trades, master of none. And that's why working at kind of a general history museum like this is, is really exciting. And by general history, I mean our collections are very um, are, are, are very diverse in, in terms of the types of items and the materials. I don't think I would be happy working at, say, a, a watch museum, you know, doing nothing but looking at watches for years on end. Um, for I more reason looking... than one, probably. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, there are curators who are very specialized in, you know, in, in their particular field, and they may go to a very specialized museum, like a clock and watch museum, um, or they may go uh, work at a much larger museum that has specialized curators. So think of something like on the par of, of the Smithsonian or some large art museum might have, you know, a painting curator and a sculpture curator or maybe multiple ones for, for various periods of time. Um, I would say in terms of my own interests, um, I, I enjoy working in historic houses, uh, which is one of the ways I've, I've ended up here. Uh, I am responsible for maintaining the White House of the Confederacy. Um, there are a number of other people who are also involved in that as well, um, but I'm the primary person who gets in and cleans all of the interior rooms. We also do things like conduct inventories to make sure that everything is present. Um, in the White House, in the wintertime, we put blankets and, um, and hats and gloves and shawls around the house uh, to make it feel, you know, like it's cold weather. Mm -hmm. And in the summertime, we, we put uh, various kinds of mosquito netting over some of the beds and put fans and things like that out. Hmm. Um, we also do um, various kinds of themed tours. Uh, so, for instance, if we're doing one on the servants and slaves who worked in the White House, we have a few items which are not normally on display that I will pull out of storage and put over there, um, you know, for, for the duration of those tours. Um, and um, historic housekeeping is basically very careful cleaning of old things. You don't want to use pretty much any modern cleaning products because most of the chemicals in them are too harsh. Um, so it really involves um, a knowledge of, of chemistry and um, basically, you know, not screwing something up that, you know, um, yeah. Because you know these are these are one of a kind pieces, and in our case, uh, many of these items actually were used in the White House during the war. So they have a a, a wonderfully rich and unique history. Um, when I'm not in the White House, which is actually most of the time, um, I'm doing everything from answering research requests. We have people who both email or call, and these could be people who are seeking a photograph for a publication. Um, maybe they're looking to, to see if we have a flag that their ancestor um, may have fought in that particular regiment, or reenactors who are who are researching, um, you know, uh, soldiers' clothing, and they want to come in and take photographs and measurements of a particular shirt or, or, or uniform jacket or haversack. Um, we also help lots of uh, students, from everyone from grade school level up to PhD level, um, and are always happy to help to delve into the collection. Um, uh, so really, that, that's one of our largest public services, is answering questions and scheduling various kinds of research appointments for people, um, because we certainly want uh, folks to understand that even though a lot of what we have is in storage, it is still accessible, uh, both through our online database um, and through contacting us either for information or to hopefully see it in person. So how did, this is maybe an ignorant question again, but how does one learn all to do all this stuff? I mean, I know you went to UNC Greensboro for, for a graduate degree, but this sounds like more than one can learn in a lifetime how to clean various things and how to yeah. take care well, of stuff and how to do all these 
yeah. identifying various artifacts, um, none of which I can do even remotely. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of it is, frankly, learned on the job. Um, a lot of graduate programs um, really focus on theory, and you might get a little bit of practical experience, but you're not going to be able to get... Um, I don't, for instance, in my graduate program, I never learned how to pack artifacts to, to transport them, either for loan or, um, you know, just, just to transport them uh, to, over to the conservator or something like that. So that was something that I knew absolutely nothing about and had to learn from my, my colleagues here, uh, at, here at the museum, uh, people who have been packing items to go out on loan for 20 years. Um, or in some cases uh, may formerly have worked for a fine art shipper, which is a whole world that I knew nothing about before becoming a, a curator. There are people who do nothing but travel around and pack artifacts or museums and ship them mm -hmm. <laughs> in these, you know, special, you know, air, air conditioned and heated trucks and things like that. Um, so just, just the world of delving into how do you handle a museum loan and how do you help another institution identify what they might want to borrow from you and going over insurance and packing and, and negotiating the, the, the term of the, of the duration of the loan. All of that is something that I know we talked about loans in graduate school, but I never would have had a full appreciation for all of the steps involved. Um, so it definitely is good for a person like me who doesn't mind diving in and kind of figuring things out and enjoys learning lots of different things. Um, that's definitely one thing I would say about my, my particular curatorial role is almost no two days are, are, are even exactly the same. Um, there, there's always a lot of diversity in terms of what I'm doing. Um, some things are, are, are somewhat cyclical, uh, but I, I really enjoy the fact that I don't feel like, you know, I'm going in and for four hours every day I have to do X, Y, Z. <laughs> when did you decide this was the kind of history you wanted to do? Was this in something that happened in college or graduate like school? Civil or War history or Either. becoming a curator? Both. Um, I always have enjoyed history of all periods. Um, I always say that, you know, if I have the right museum or the right book or the right documentary, I can get interested in just about anything. Um, so that natural curiosity and, and love of, of history has certainly always been with me. Um, but I never really knew or thought about working um, in, in, uh, in, in museums until um, I think I was a sophomore uh, undergraduate in college and heard about an internship at the Harry S. Truman Presidential Museum and Library, which is in Independence, Missouri. And um, it was a summer internship. I was looking for something to do over the summer. And so I ended up going and interning in the archives. And I absolutely loved it. But what I loved even more was when they gave us the tour of the museum vault. And, um, and even just browsing, you know, through the, you know, all of the museum galleries, which I did at, at, at you know, at, at any opportunity. Um, sometimes, you know, looking at the exhibit, but sometimes just watching how other people interacted with it and what they were stopping to look at and, you know, what they were passing by and why. Um, and that just seemed such an exciting way to be able to connect my love of history with something um, other than teaching, because I realized that for myself personally, I wouldn't want to be um, I probably didn't want to teach high school history. I would want to go on to the college level, but I wasn't really sure I wanted to go through all of the education necessary on my own part to be able to be able to teach at that level. And um, so I, I just, I, I really jumped on it. I started investigating um, how people became curators and 
um, one of the exciting um, new waves in this field is that uh, there are lots and lots of new graduate and undergraduate um, classes and degree programs mm -hmm. in museum studies and public history that have just ballooned over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, I want to say when I was looking into graduate programs, um, you know, almost 10 years ago, um, there were maybe 10 or 12, maybe 15. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now there are dozens and dozens of them. Um, and it's from coast to coast as well as overseas. Uh, one of our volunteers that we had uh, last year uh, had gone to a graduate program um, over in Great Britain. Mm. Um, so um, I think that the downside is there's probably a lot more people enrolled in these classes and therefore probably more competition for various kinds of museum jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's also great that the word is out that there are other things that people can do with those history degrees. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've noticed that that sort of general trend, or especially over the past decade, of how many schools are trying to hire public historians to build a public history program or uh, if they've already got one to enhance one. I know when we were when I was at North Dakota, we, we hired uh, a public historian. We already had a program, but we didn't have somebody doing it full time. And it seemed like there were lots of other people doing similar kinds of searches at the time. And I, I guess Absolutely. students. And I know that um, there, there's um, a program here in Richmond, for instance, for undergraduates. And it's, I, I think it's some kind of museum studies Mm -hmm. uh, class, but it's in the art history department, mm -hmm. which is kind of a little bit of a different animal. I would say that generally art museums and history museums, while they're somewhat related, they are kind of distant cousins. Mm -hmm. uh, they generally kind of run in different circles. Some things overlap quite a bit, like we're all very interested in packing and shipping yeah. and, and security and things like that. Um, but in terms of um, you know, conferences and things, I would say that usually when I go to museum conferences, I see very few art people there. It's, it's more history museums and history sites. Mm. Um, so for better or for worse, those two worlds are, are a little bit divided. And um, I'm not quite so sure, um, for instance, if this local program is really more tailored toward art history. Mm. I have had a couple of interns that have come to me because um, they they were enrolled in that program, but they were really much more interested in history museums. Uh, so to kind of balance it out, they ended up doing their class and you know all of their classwork here, um, which is fine by me. I'm I'm always very uh, very happy and willing to 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 welcome interns and volunteers who are thinking about going into a career uh, working in museums because I think it's really uh, highly recommendable to have you know actual experience doing it to see if you really like it. Um, I would say I do get um, some volunteers who really just don't enjoy working at the computer and mm. there is a lot of computer work involved in museum work. Um, uh, um, we're, we're uh, for instance, we've been working on our, on our collections database for years and we'll still be working on it for years to come. Um, so that's something that everyone has put a lot of time in. Um, everyone from our senior curator all the way down to our interns, and I've had some interns who just cannot sit still and focus and get, get you know get onto that kind of you know really detail oriented um, kind of kind of focused work. Um, so you know I would say maybe don't rule out museum work entirely, but be aware that you might not want to work in a place that has a large kind of desk kind of component. You might be happier um, you know out at a historic site that has you know lots of walking tours which you can mm -hmm. help or something like that. So uh, I, I definitely um, always go back 
to the old Greek saying of know thyself. And, um, you know, that certainly goes for getting That's a lot to ask of a 22 year old though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also think that, you know, my wonderful experience at, at the Truman Museum, you know, definitely shaped my future career path. So I'm, I'm always hoping that when I, I have a volunteer or, or, or an intern that I could be helping to play a similar kind of role. I think lots of students are going to public history because they, they want something where they can see a job at the end of it. And your, your vanilla history degree, oftentimes they say, well, this is great. I love history, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with this when I'm done. Exactly. And, you know, being a historian or graduating with a history degree um, can, you know, can really be a, a, um, a, a wonderful way to get into other kinds of careers that are more research-based. Um, so other things, for instance, like becoming lawyers, sure. I, I know there's a lot of history folks who do that. Um, but I think perhaps another uh, career field that could be often overlooked um, might be uh, conservation, yeah. uh, artifact conservation, which is something that I never thought about. And honestly, I don't think I'd be well suited for it um, because you have to have a lot of patience and be able to <laughs> and kind of pick at one little thing or do mm -hmm. one little thing for hours on end, day after day. Uh, but the folks who do it are wonderful, and they have both a wonderful appreciation for and knowledge of history, but they also have um, a lot of training um, on on chemistry, and they, they, they really study, you know, how different materials interact, uh, both, you know, modern treatment materials as well as, you know, old paints and old finishes and things. And I'm constantly impressed when, when we have reason to, to contact a conservator, uh, whether it's for a sculpture or a quilt or a, a uniform. I've seen um, some of the flags that uh, at your museum that the conservators have done and seen the before and after pictures. And it's just amazing, you know, the rags it, it looks like beforehand and how absolutely. pristine it looks like afterwards. Sometimes they are just breathtaking. Um, one flag in particular, it was a silk flag with um, an oil painted central seal. And oil on silk does not fare well over time, uh, even under the best of circumstances. And this poor flag, with two layers. So kind of imagine both of the layers sagging away from each other mm -hmm. and then those silk and oil painted bits just literally just curling and cracking and falling off into what I have likened to paint chips. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this pile of paint chips and I delivered it to the conservator, not even really knowing what the flag originally looked like because it was just in pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and when we picked it up a year later, it was so breathtaking, it almost brought tears to my eyes. Um, it was this incredibly unique portrait of the company marching out of the flag with this angel flying overhead and the company captain and the two musicians and each face on every soldier was completely unique. Um, and it was, it was just, it was beautiful. It was, a, it was a wonderful work of art and it clearly had a, a, a wonderful story behind it. And the fact that this thing had been, you know, basically sitting ignored because we couldn't see the beauty because of its condition. Um, it was, it was very, very rewarding, but, uh, certainly not cheap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it's a yeah. year's uh, worth of work, so it's a yeah. <laughs> so I would say that that um, the various kinds of object conservators are are very much worth every penny, <laughs> and that could be a a very interesting kind of career. I mean, one of the things I've noticed about your work there as a, as a curator is you seem to be far more out in public uh, as a public face of the museum than I think lots of curators are. Was that a choice that you made when you? came on to the Museum of the Confederacy? Yes and no. Um, I would say, you know, it certainly helps that I'm a young woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Um, but I, I don't mind embracing that, that, that kind of public persona. And for me, um, the idea of working in a museum was not appealing because of, you know, working in an office and just kind of being secluded with all of the artifacts. Mm -hmm. It was making meaning out of these artifacts. It doesn't do any good if they're preserved and no one's coming to see them. You need to interpret them to get people to think about them and to engage with them to kind of use them as a window back into history. So for me, I have very much seen um, uh, a you know as one of of, of my primary goals uh, in in this profession uh, is to interest people mm -hmm. and whether that's going out and you know doing public programs um, or doing interesting research that um, that that then is lucky enough to get lots of of of, of a positive PR. Mm -hmm. It's it's all wonderful and I think it's great when I um, when I hear from families with with young children who um, you know may have seen a piece about us on the mysteries at at the museum show mm -hmm. on, on on the Travel Channel or yeah. something. Well, and, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I just, I just think it's really great because I, I feel like it's actually working. You know, that if, that if some seven-year-old girl gets, gets really excited about one of our, our drug smuggling dolls, uh, and wants to come here and see it, then it's, it's definitely mission accomplished. So, so the, the drug smuggling doll was on the, uh, from the episodes you were on of what, History Detectives on PBS? Yeah. The, the drug smuggling dolls were a blockbuster. Um, we have. <laughs> These two lovely dolls uh, out of our collection um, of about 30 dolls mm -hmm. uh, that have uh, very similar histories, according to the family, um, that they were used to smuggle quinine or morphine uh, through the blockade during the war uh, to help treat southern soldiers. Um, and so we kind of had an idea just to take them to the hospital next door to get them x-rayed. And uh, we thought, uh, and this, this is something I would definitely recommend whenever you're going to do something kind of fun and interesting, ask a reporter to, to tag along. <laughs> so we, we asked the, the, the local Richmond um, reporter who's with the Associated Press to come with us. And he brought his photographer. So they took these wonderful pictures and did a, a story about us you know, X-raying our our drug smuggling dolls for for um, for evidence of of the medication. We really didn't expect to learn a whole lot from this. Um, you know, we wanted to be able to look inside of their heads, possibly see if the stuffing in the body had had been somewhat disturbed, as though it 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 may have been removed to to make you know room mm -hmm. for the medication. Um, but we really didn't learn anything earth shattering. So it was kind of incredible when the AP story ran and it was picked up by, you know, hundreds of news outlets around mm -hmm. the world. And that was when the history detectives with, with, uh, with PBS contacted us and um, they had read the story and they wanted to make arrangements with the local forensics department to have the dolls swabbed and um, analyzed to see if there were any traces of quinine or morphine and kind of depending on the test results they would decide if they wanted to film with us mm -hmm. so as far as i was concerned it was more you know free research and it was certainly very exciting um so we ended up doing that and filming the segment and um then we we filmed another segment on the same topic uh with with the mysteries at the museum on the travel channel mm -hmm. and they subsequently returned a second time to film a segment on um i think i mentioned earlier our, our vicksburg message in a bottle sure. a little hidden message that basically was um was sent um to general pemberton inside of vicksburg in july of 1863 but never delivered and um so it had been 
basically this small piece of paper inside of a little glass medicine bottle sitting in our exhibit for, you know, almost 100 years. And um, I just happened to ask our senior curator one day if they'd ever thought about opening it and reading the message. <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, you know, we've thought about it, sure, but we're kind of afraid that we'll break the bottle or the, the message will, you know, kind of crumble, and, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and we'll end up kind of destroying the artifact in our quest to learn more about it. Um, so I suggested that we, you know, perhaps take it to a conservator and have them evaluate it and tell us if it, you know, if they recommended it, if, if it could be done safely. Uh, so we went through that process and they were able to extract that little rolled up message and gradually open it. And when we did that, um, we were finally able to read it. Uh, but the only thing that we could actually read uh, was the date, which was July 4th. The rest wow. of the message was just complete uh, gobbledygook because mm -hmm. it was written in a secret encrypted code. <laughs> um, so we got code breakers involved to help us, you know, crack this and finally read it, uh, which, which we did. Um, and so ultimately the contents of the message would not have made a bit of difference in terms of, you know, the, the, the siege, uh, and the eventual surrender of Vicksburg. Um, it was more kind of our process of opening it and discovering it that that was so fascinating. Um, and so we were able to highlight that on a Mysteries at the Museum episode as well. And the message is back on display here in Richmond, by the way, uh, as is one of our drug smuggling dolls. Okay. Um, we did uh, have a professional photographer photograph that, that message, uh, and then we rolled it back up and put it back in the bottle. So oh. as, it, as it sits uh, back on exhibit today, it's pretty much how it appeared up until we actually opened it as well. But now there's a, um, a copy of the photograph with with the text uh, and uh, and a copy of, of the decrypted text printed right uh, right 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 beneath it. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier the the taking it to, taking the doll to the to the hospital to have it X-rayed. And for those people who haven't visited the museum in its current location, it's sort of dwarfed on all sides by I guess it was it Virginia Commonwealth University yeah, Medical Center. Yeah, it's the Virginia Commonwealth University slash Medical College of Virginia. Oh. Um, I'm not entirely clear on 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 their uh, inter interconnectedness, uh, but yes, they have certainly grown up around us. Um, people sometimes ask, "Well, why did you build your?" You know, <laughs> it's like we didn't build our museum in the middle of this. You know, they started out as a small building across the street, and then they just kept growing. And unfortunately, uh, Richmond city planning has not always been the best, mm -hmm. and so they now literally encircle us. Mm -hmm. um, and actually loom over the back part of our building just a little bit as well. Um, so this really has been probably our greatest challenge here at the museum uh, for probably the last 20 to 30 years is we've become increasingly difficult to see because mm -hmm. the hospital buildings are all, you know, more than 10, 10 stories high, whereas, you know, our museum building and the White House are only three stories high, so it, it's hard to even see us. Yeah. Um, and then our parking situation, uh, we, our staff and visitors uh, share parking in the parking deck with the hospital staff and visitors. <laughs> Which is a, a very um, different clientele, I would imagine. But. Yes, and it makes it very interesting when there's, you know, a, a free clinic day. And so there's, you know, hundreds of cars down here all trying to find parking spots right, right before 9 o'clock. And we don't even open our doors to the public until 10. So our visitors are getting here when there's almost no parking available. Um, when they can find a spot, it is free. Uh, so, and, and then on the weekends, it's generally much easier to find parking because that's you know when far, far, 
far fewer hospital people are, are, are down here working. Um, but it has made it very difficult. Um, and probably the number one comment that we hear at the front desk for the last 10 years um, there's something along the lines of, wow, I, it was so hard to find you, I almost gave up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's certainly not something which you want to hear. Um, so it's really been nothing short of a miracle that as the sesquicentennial, the 150th, has gotten kicked off, that our visitation uh, have, have continued to go up uh, because more people are, are seeking us out. Um, but um, that really has been... Um, kind of what was motivating um, our CEO and director, Wade Rawls, uh, about 10 years ago when he started kind of considering, you know, well, what is the future of the museum and what can we do? Mm -hmm. And initially, our plan was to build a, several satellite museums around the state uh, that would essentially serve as kind of off-site museums, um, which would not have any storage. They would simply have exhibits. Mm -hmm. And so that we would be able to get more artifacts out on exhibit uh, in areas that it would both be easier for people to physically access, um, as well as to put them somewhat back into the context of the places from from which they came. And we um, managed to open um, our first branch, which was uh, the Museum of the Confederacy in Appomattox, uh, which opened in, um, I think it was 2011, mm. um, or maybe 2012. Um, I think it was 2012. Um, and so that was really wonderful because we have so many artifacts relating to, to the surrender at Appomattox. Uh, everything from the frock coat and sword that, that Robert E. Lee wore when he met with General Grant. Uh, you know, we have um, hundreds of, of flags that were surrendered or captured, and many of those were, uh, were surrendered out at Appomattox. Um, so it's a very nice counterpoint to the National Park Service. Site, uh, out in Appomattox, which has the wonderful structures and the historic site, but they don't have many actual artifacts. Mm -hmm. And so now with our building right up the road, we have, you know, just a wonderful wealth of artifacts and different kinds of audiovisual uh, things that people can use to kind of delve into and learn more about the war and kind of why, you know, why things ended up out there and why we all think of Appomattox as, you know, as the end of the war. Um, also gave us an opportunity to kind of explore how soldiers got home mm -hmm. and, picked up and, and picked up the pieces and kind of tried to move on. Um, so it's, it's, um, that, that was definitely one of our, our, our more recent wonderful successes. Um, but I have to say that with the news of the merger and us, you know, building a brand new museum facility down at Tredegar, that's very exciting because it, it, it gets us out of the middle of this hospital complex. Sure. Um, and we will still, of course, uh, own and operate the White House. And um, our plan is to, um, I don't know if we're actually going to just have people um, come up here and, and continue to try to find the house on their own, or if we might consider some kind of shuttle service. Um, but um, we will have um, a, a new exhibit in the basement of the White House that people will be able to look at before they get started on their tour that will probably explore um, either the Davis family uh, and or the servants and slaves who, who worked and lived in the house. So it'll be a, a, a really wonderful experience and um, hopefully a, a, um, a good and positive solution to our, our, our current situation. So I imagine in, in building this this new facility, you're going to have you know a struggle to how to create a narrative that incorporates all the things that you have uh, and the things that are already there at, at Tredegar. And um, one of the things I've always 
struck me as, as one of the challenges that public historians have is how do you communicate to just the wide range of audiences that show up at a museum from small children who know nothing, who are brought there by their parents to the kinds of people who, who you know, recognize the, the dates of, of, of you know, different guns and, and know yeah. far more about all these kinds of minutiae than, than you, you know, probably reasonable people should expect to know. Um, yeah, you know, that, is really, that? that is really the big challenge is, you know, how, how to satisfy the interest level and knowledge levels of all of the various visitors who are coming. And as you say, some people um, are very young and don't know much about, you know, much of any of, 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 uh, of that. And they're looking more just to be entertained um, or at least learn a little bit, you know, while, you know, uh, um, you know, hope, hopefully, uh, while, while they're being entertained. Um, but also there are people who are really interested, uh, not so much in the war, but in certain types of items like guns or dresses. Um, and then the people who, um, you know, really know a lot about the war and are going to appreciate, um, you know, a, a, a fuller and more nuanced kind of analysis. Um, and this is where the uh, exhibition designers and, and the exhibition team uh, really has a challenge. Um, I think the good news is that with us having recently gone through a very similar process with developing the main exhibit out in Appomattox, uh, that really had um, some of its own unique challenges because we didn't want to just, you know, plunk people down in 1865 and assume that they knew, you know, everything that had led up to that. So we had to explain in a fairly brief manner, you know, why the war began and kind of get people through the first three or four years of the war so that we could get them to Appomattox and then kind of get them back out again. Mm -hmm. um, so thinking about these kinds of things in a very nuanced way and uh, also how your collection can support it. Mm -hmm. um, and then areas where um, either the, the theme or the topic is so kind of amorphous that artifacts can't really help shed light on it and it may be better dealt with in some kind of interpretive way or or perhaps a, a video or a game or something like that um, those it's all part of a very long but carefully thought out process which which is all very exciting yeah well I, so, I can imagine I, that these kinds of challenges are particularly hard though for a civil war museum where people come to it with such passionate ideas I would some well formed in others about about what the war was about and why it was fought I would, I would, I would agree. I would say that um, any museum dedicated to a topic like the Civil War, uh, and, and in particular the the Civil War, uh, is going to have to tread carefully. And I would also venture to say that our institution, in particular, uh, has some challenges, both in terms of who we have been traditionally. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of where we're trying to go, uh, and by virtue of the fact that we're in the city of Richmond, mm -hmm. uh, which some of us in the historical community sometimes feel that the city um, doesn't want to celebrate its Civil War kind of heritage. Mm -hmm. And I can certainly appreciate how it should be approached very sensitively, um, and certainly in, in conjunction with, you know, um, other kinds of, of um of efforts going on in the city to to commemorate other parts of history. Uh, for instance, one of the big discussions that's been going on in Richmond for a few years now, and it's kind of coming to a head right now, 
um, there's been a proposal to relocate and basically build a new baseball stadium uh, down in Shaco Bottom, um, which is kind of right in the middle of kind of downtown. And um, our current baseball stadium is kind of more on, on the outskirts. And so they're kind of touting it as a way to bring, you know, shopping and other things down to this particular neighborhood. Um, but the area where they want to build it is literally right on top of uh uh, what is basically the epicenter of the slave trade in, um, you know, here sure. here in Richmond. Uh, it was it was some of the locations of what are known as slave jails, which were where uh, African American slaves were held prior to being sold at slave auctions or placed onto trains or, or otherwise taken out of Richmond. Um, so that's a very painful history that Richmond has not really dealt with, and there are a lot of people who would much prefer to see that area turned into some kind of memorial, uh, either a garden or some kind of museum or something that would explain, you know, the, the, the historical importance of that site. And so those notions do not include, you know, any part of, of a baseball diamond. Sure. <laughs> it seems like Richmond has a long legacy of, you know, trying to put contrasting images of its past, whether it's, uh, you know, Monument Avenue and, and, Putting Arthur Ashe up alongside, um, you know, Robert E. Lee, you know, there and the controversy about that, or the, I guess, at Tredegar, they have the statue of Lincoln that uh, some people opposed very, you know, vocally. Um, mm -hmm. Probably a very, uh, very small minority, but a very loud minority who uh, disapproved yeah. of that statue. So. Uh, yeah, I, I was I actually started working as an intern with the Park Service uh, the summer right after that Lincoln statue uh, had been placed down at, at down at the Tredegar site. So I was here in Richmond, stationed at the NPS you know Tredegar place, um, and so we um, were. We, we, we had a rather thick binder of information that that's <laughs> supposed to to kind of learn and digest so that we could handle various kinds of comments and things. Um, having seen the statue, you know, with Lincoln seated on, uh, on a bench with his son Tad next mm -hmm. to him and uh, engraved on a piece of granite behind them is, is a quote that's something to the effect of uh, to bind up the nation's wounds. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily see um, perhaps why it's, so offensive, especially considering that Lincoln did historically come to Richmond uh, sure. shortly after it fell. Um, but I certainly can appreciate some people's views that it, you yeah. know, kind of seems to be, a, you know, a, a sign of, of the northern invader coming sure. down. I don't personally agree with that. Oh, neither do I. I but I, I think you know. that, you know, kind of commemorating the fact that this was an event that happened and, you know, <laughs> uh, sure. is, is, is all very nice. Uh, and kind of interestingly, this this is kind of just just, just a little bit um, off on a tangent, but the one monument that I dearly wish had been erected on Monument Avenue, and uh, it, it actually was proposed and a design was submitted, um, it was going to be a monument to Captain Sally Tompkins, who was the uh, only woman who was commissioned as an officer in, in the Confederate Army. Um, she was uh, commissioned... Uh, uh, as a captain, uh, basically uh, to thank her for her untiring efforts uh, as 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 a nurse, you know, running a hospital here in Richmond. But what was interesting was the monument design was submitted by Salvador Dali. Really? <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? That would be extraordinary. <laughs> wow. It's it's just a shame that it never got built. <laughs> we should do something about that. Um, it's never too late. Um, I guess I have one final question for you. Do you have a favorite artifact there at the museum? 
That's a hard one. And people ask me that. It would be kind of like choosing a favorite child, I think. Um, I just really enjoy the, the great stories behind things and how something can seem to be very ordinary. And when, then when you read about what it is and the thing behind it, it suddenly is just so much more fascinating. So I'll just leave you with, with, with one good example of that. There was this plate sitting on a shelf, just a plain white dinner plate, you know, and it had a label on top of it that I picked up one day and read. And the first sentence said, um, this plate struck a Yankee on the side of his face. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes on from there to explain that it was owned by a woman who lived in the Shenandoah Valley and some Union soldiers came to her home and basically ransacked it, you know, looking for food. And she, being a staunch Confederate, was not going to give up all of her food. And when they tried to take this plate of butter, she began to argue with him about it. And in the ensuing argument, apparently picked it up and just hit him across the face with it. <laughs> And um, his officer had to intervene to kind of calm things down because the soldier was understandably very upset. Um, and uh, the plate had a couple of hairline cracks in it, which okay. we, we could never say, you know, whether that was actually caused by that. But it also had a little hole bored up uh, up on, on one edge of the rim where, where it had clearly been hung on a nail very proudly on someone's wall and probably had this, this story told to, to countless visitors. Um, so this very humble plate suddenly becomes a symbol of Confederate women's resistance to Union occupation and, um, you know, some of the tense encounters which, which, could, which, which could happen in, in between soldiers and civilians during the war. Well, Kathy, it's been really great talking to you, and thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, David. So that was my conversation with Kathy Wright, the curator of the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia. If you have questions or comments about the show, uh, you can reach me via email at AmericanHistoryUntucked at gmail.com. You can visit this show's uh, website, AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com. We're also now on Twitter and Facebook, so you can find us both of those places if you're interested. Follow us on Twitter, and you can like us on Facebook, and you'll have updates about upcoming shows. Until next time, I'm your host, David Silkenet.